We're back, a bit late again, and as usual, we did not do what we planned to do. So in this episode, we talk about Energiewende and the difficulties in turning a highly industrialized society of 80 million Germans carbon neutral. And in the second part, we talk about Brexit and how it has already impacted the science in the UK. Also, I think I will give up on making promises on what Bart and I will be talking about in the next talk episode. We're too unpredictable. Or too predictable in not doing what we planned. As for the unreliable publication of episodes lately, the bureaucracies connected to my move to Germany are being overcome step by step. So I hope I will soon be able to get back into the usual bi-weekly schedule. Fear not, I do have the next three interviews already recorded and I think I got us some very interesting guests. After that, the program is still open. Would you like to suggest a topic to talk about in the near future? You can send me messages on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at CypherProgress. DMs are open. Or through email, info at scienceforprogress.eu. As always, you can listen to the extended edition of this episode on www.patreon.com slash progress If you pledge to support my science advocacy efforts with $5.99 per month. You can also listen to a couple of episodes for free. The latest ones that I opened up to all audiences are our conversation with scientists in and from Britain. Episode 24. And on November 17th, I opened the extended edition of episode 25, where I talk about science communication with Elodie Chabrol of the internationally successful science festival Pint of Science. At this point, I want to thank everybody who is already supporting me. Thank you very much. It really helps. My co-host is Bart Gurton, and I'm your host, Dennis Eggmeier. And this is episode 37 of the Science for Societal Progress podcast. Hey, Bart. How are you doing? Fine. It's a Saturday for once. <laughs> I think we never recorded on the weekend before, did we? Yeah. You know why that is? Because it's supposed to go online on Sunday. Oh, that's going to be a tough night for you, I guess. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I have one of these senseless pop culture recommendations, and that's uh, Sound and Fury, a new thing on Netflix. It's an anime that basically has no verbal comments and is just music video to the Sturgill Simpson record album Sound and Fury. It's amazingly good. I don't know the, I, I don't know the music even. I think you would like it. It's somewhere between Rob Zombie and Disco Techno. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And it has like country music influences and i was like Ooh. what a weird song what a weird music video it's really good yeah good i was surprised robert uh, graduated yeah it's the last one of the first generation of phd students that i had Ooh. Huh. and we had a very very good uh set of party so i think things are going well for him nice <laughs> <laughs> if he's sober again he, he still didn't get his t-shirt Well, that's true, but he still didn't choose it. <laughs> he really needs to choose a T-shirt. Who was your guest in the last climate change episode? So in the last episode, I talked to Tom Brown, 
uh, group leader at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. And he has been doing uh, modeling studies on how you could manage distributing power across Germany or energy, actually. So first of all, we were talking about uh, electricity, but then he said, no, this is actually bigger than that because you will also want to integrate into those models other energy forms, like chemical energy or heat. He talks about the heat grid and the gas grid, I guess. Yeah, he mentions them and he says that it would be very beneficial to think of those as connected to the electricity grid. There are certain applications where you still need energy in chemical form. What you're talking about are those power-to-x processes. Yes, it's power-to-x. Um, power meaning electricity and electricity from renewable sources. And what you do is you, you use the energy to create carbon chain molecules, kerosene or benzene, uh, things like that. Or you can use power to split water into oxygen and hydrogen, and then you'd have the hydrogen gas as a power storage device. Interestingly, next week, the German federal government is actually showing their hydrogen strategy in Berlin. So before lawmaking take, comes into place, they always have the strategy papers and they are going to present it next week in Berlin. First of all, to scientists and the media, but after that, you can have a look into that paper and see how they want to actually achieve that. What many energy researchers are pushing for is hydrogen as the bridging system instead of direct electrical cars because to produce the batteries is very expensive and also costly for nature. So hydrogen would be a possible option for that. Fun fact, if you drive a hydrogen car and you get shot at, it might really explode. <laughs> like all the 80s movies would finally be right in like people shooting at cars and then they explode in big, beautiful fireballs. Right. But okay, so that's that sounds like an interesting idea which I don't agree with because industry has already committed to electrical vehicles in Germany. And the other thing is that you need more electricity to power all those cars with hydrogen than you need to power all those cars with batteries because the conversion is much more inefficient. That is true. But on the other hand, if you have renewable energies, you basically have unlimited power. As long as you, like, if you if we would put as much money into renewable energies as we do, let's say, into mining for the last 20 years, we could easily get immense amounts of power. And the other problem that you have with batteries is the loading and unloading phases. Like, if you want to have single-person mobility and you need to basically load your car with energy and this takes four hours, and you only have 300 kilometers range, a drive from your place to mine takes at least seven hours. That's, uh, that's why I take the train for those kind of rides. But let's be realistic here. I mean, how many people drive larger distances like that 
on a regular basis. To my knowledge, most people, they drive to work and back. And if they are long-range commuters, that's like 120 kilometers altogether. And that's half of the common range that uh, an electric car has right now. And if you drive 120 kilometers a day, then you use the car for at maximum three hours. And then you have 21 hours a day to charge it. Exactly. But there's already a strong problem. So charging your car at home is one thing. But charging your car while you are at work where you travel to or commute to is another thing. And who's going to pay for these charging costs? And where are the possibilities to charge your car there? Well, that's the thing, right? You need to build uh, these th those things. You need to build uh, electric charging stations and all that. Everywhere where uh, cars can park. Fair enough. But again, the infrastructure has to come from somewhere. Well, but you have, you, we don't like have... Liquid fuel... But hydrogen is not a liquid fuel. You need a completely different infrastructure there too. You need a different uh, ways to fill your car with that, with hydrogen than you need with uh, liquid fuels. In most gas stations you, in Germany, you can buy gasoline, but you can also buy liquid gas. And that seemed to be a rather simple transition, also transitioning... So you don't only want gas to make hydrogen, you also want to liquefy it before you sell it, which that costs even more energy to create. The gas stations already have... A lot of different fuels uh, couldn't already offer a lot of different fuels. And it's a completely different infrastructural project to change all the gas stations in a large country than to change each and every parking space. So I haven't seen that many natural gas stations or natural gas pumps. I wouldn't have noticed either if the car sharing company that I use wouldn't have uh, liquid gas cars. I am very skeptical that it makes sense to first change everything for to hydrogen and then change everything to batteries. That makes very little sense. No, I don't think this is... I think the idea behind it is to generally produce hydrogen as a fuel. I think there are applications where you still need uh, liquid fuels or, or fuels in, as gas. I'm skeptical that that will work for personal transport. If I now would have to theorize how personal mobility will look like in 20 years, I, w I would say that the number of privately owned cars is going to drop, especially in cities. And then you might have cars that work on electricity and batteries for commutes and the same car sharing companies will offer cars with a longer range for longer travels around, Ge around Germany or around like the European Union. I can't produce a paper at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a few statistics that actually show that our generation is already the lowest looking back to like the 1950s who treat the car as a status symbol. Mm. Like in you and my generation, it's treated less than a status symbol than in our parents' generation, etc. Furthermore, all car sharing systems are currently growing and the number of newly registered cars is slowly declining per year. Uh, I saw in on TV that people were protesting 
having power lines or transmission lines built through their neighborhood. And you know why we need those transmission lines? We need those transmission lines because people in Bavaria protest against having wind turbines in their neighborhood. So how is this ever going to be solved? By don't caring for all the naggers. And just uh, build through everybody's neighborhoods? It's a NIMBY problem. NIMBY standing for not in my backyard. Of course, the current government is not going to annoy the middle class by saying, yes, you get wind turbines and yeah, there's going to be an overland power line. Because if you don't want to burn coal, this is the only way how we get power into your systems. But what are you going to do? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. So in, in my uh, region where I'm living, when it was about brown coal, they just removed the whole village. Now it's just about some power lines and a wind turbine. People are shitting their, their pants. Oh, come on. But it's a completely different thing. Yours is somewhere in Nordrhein-Westphalia where people don't give a shit about people. And the other one is happening in Bavaria. The beautiful country of Bavaria. <laughs> to all non-German listeners, the, the big difference we are talking about is that um, Bavaria has a very strong regional party that takes quite a strong stance for all things Bavarian. And there's nothing comparable to a strong other, another strong regional party in Germany. Yes. So it's so big, it's considered the sister party of the governing Christian Democratic Union. Exactly. And whenever these guys say, we don't want power lines and we don't want wind turbines, the the conservative union actually follows their lead for Bavaria. So in many legislations even, Bavaria has a, has a special law or right to it. For example, ground tax, if you build a house, is differently measured in Bavaria than anywhere else in Germany. So those are the people who don't want wind turbines and probably also not transmission lines. And and the ones that are just protesting the, the transmission lines, which is even an underground line, which Tom Brown considered to be less of a problem, they still don't want that stuff around. And that's not in Bavaria. That's further to the north. Because for those who don't know the the geography of Germany... We have a coast in the north where we build a lot of offshore uh, wind parks. And uh, Bavaria is all the way in the south. It's about 800 kilometers. And so, yeah, the power needs to get from all the way in the north to all the way in the south. And there's a whole lot of Germany between where those transmission lines are supposed to uh, go through. And, yeah, people don't want those transmission lines. For various unclear reasons. Well, because it's ruining their landscapes. Trees have to be felled, etc., etc. And, as I said, coming from a region where there's brown coal mining, I really don't care if they have to lose, like, two, two trees or something. I don't know. And here they destroyed whole... Communities, towns, villages, forests, agricultural uh, space. 
to make a huge hole into the ground so everybody in those areas gets their uh, power. Yeah, the other thing is that many people claim that they get headaches from over uh, from transmission lines where there's yeah. no scientific proof of that. Do you know how many transmission lines we have here? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Because we also have the 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 power plants, right? Uh so we have coal power plants here. Uh I think there's nuclear power somewhere not too far. We have wind turbines now, we have solar plants. And we have a whole lot of transmission lines. And we are not less healthy than other people. All right. Were we done talking about climate change? Let's talk about another very slowly unfolding disaster. Let's talk about Brexit. But before we continue, let me just throw in that you, dear listener, can check out the show notes for a summary and some links to further readings on our website www.scienceforprogress.eu Brexit didn't happen again. Yeah, but seemingly also Boris Johnson is not dead in a ditch. What? Yeah, he said he would be rather dead in a ditch than not leave the EU. Yeah. I feel cheated, <laughs> Boris. I feel cheated. <laughs> so what is happening now? I mean, I didn't I don't understand as far as I understand the situation, and we might stand corrected by our British listeners, the idea was that on the 31st they would leave. And if they couldn't get a contract with the EU about the terms of leaving, not about how they would leave, just how we get the next two years to really a new contract, then there would be something called the hard Brexit, which is basically the Britain leaves on WTO terms. WTO stands for World Trade Organization and would have the same trading terms as any other nation in the world that doesn't have a running trading contract with the EU, which is, as far as I understand, quite bad for everybody involved. So that would be going back to default trade rules, which, as far as I know, no country is actually using because as soon as they're having trade relationships, they start negotiating their own terms. Sure. And that's also this hard Brexit thing was the whip that Boris Johnson wanted to use to get the parliament in line so that they would vote for any kind of deal that he could produce with the EU. I see. So he basically said, I am, I'm going to leave. I'm going to shoot us all in the head if you don't vote for my deal. <laughs> and then the parliament did something quite clever. They just released a law that said, you can't leave on WTO terms or on the hard Brexit. But if this possibility looms, you actually have to ask for an extension. Ah, uh, I see. That's this no hard Brexit, or I think it's called the Bren law, after one of the writers. And they passed that. And so that he wouldn't have deal with such shenanigans, he wanted to set everybody on a prolonged vacation <laughs> to somehow like the 20th of October and did so by lying to the queen. So she prolonged a, a parliament and then the Scottish court and the one of the highest courts in, in Britain decided unanimously, which happens, I don't know, once every hundred years <laughs> that this was unlawful and that parliament has to be set back into motion. And, 
officially declared that he has misled the queen. Then they released the no hard Brexit law. And then he started trying to get a real deal with the EU. He got a new deal, a deal that was different from Theresa's May deal. And everybody was super excited about that because the EU promised that they would never open it again. But the new deal is worse than the May deal. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> so nobody on the EU side actually thought Boris is going to ring us up and say like, do you want an even better deal? That is even worse for Britain. I can offer you one. <laughs> and now he didn't have the numbers anymore because he basically ditched uh, Northern Ireland and said like, uh, <clears throat> yeah, mm, if we don't want this backstop thingy for all of Britain, then it's only eligible for Northern Ireland and we will have a, a border in the Irish Sea. Right. So Northern, Northern Ireland is stuck with us in one in one trade zone and the rest of the UK in another one. Right. Great Britain, I think. And th this is because the uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland um, have a contract saying that there cannot be a closed border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And since the Republic of Ireland is part of Europe, they cannot keep the border open and stay and leave the European Union. Because leaving Schengen is part of the of the whole idea, so they have to find a different solution, and the solution now is that Northern Ireland basically remains in the EU. They have to abide to all the regulations because they have an open border with uh, with the Republic of Ireland, and when they want to move stuff, uh, goods, and everything to the rest of the UK. Then they have to go through all the motions. Basically, how this somehow concluded is now in a new election that's going to happen on the 12th of December, where Britain is going to vote on a new government. And the Labour Party is actually opting for the version that they try to renegotiate for a third time, then come with a final deal and the option to stay in the EU back to the public and make another referendum on that specific deal against staying in the EU. So, last time uh, they almost left the Euro European Union, uh, we talked to a couple of uh, scientists um, affected by Brexit, and they were actually quite optimistic about how f the UK government will pick up the funding, and uh, how they already had like some deals going on with the European Union and how they would have a status like Switzerland where the UK continues to pay in the research and development part of the European Union. However, the real data that the Royal Society found show a very different picture. The European funds for science that went to the UK have dropped from 1.49 billion euros in 2015 to 1.16 billion euros in 2018, which is a drop of 30%. And uh, overall, so what this article in Spiegel Online calculated, I don't know if that number is 100% correct, but they estimate that 
the UK lost more than a billion euros in science funding that they usually would have gotten if things would have stayed on the level of 2015. Of course, you could say, oh, this is our, these are the evil Europeans trying to get back at the poor British people and not granting them uh, funding. But that's actually not the case. What is the case is that the whole uncertainty surrounding Brexit makes UK researchers wary of applying for funds with the European Union because they don't know what will happen with the money if, while they're in the middle of their project, Brexit happens. So it's actually the scientists in the UK who aren't even applying anymore so the numbers of applications have dropped by 39%, but the number of successful applications actually only dropped by 32%, uh, which means that, no, the European unions are not angry at the UK researchers. They're actually giving them money at a higher rate than before in comparison, since the, the number of all uh, applications dropped uh, more than the amount of uh, granted applications or successful applications. And then the other question is, is there a loss of reputation for for UK science? I'm not sure if I would call it that. I don't think it's for the science, but for the UK. Yes, the UK, that's I mean, definitely, yeah, 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 I think so. I mean, if you if if you would nowadays get an offer for a university in Turingen, if I would get an offer for a university in Turingen, I would really have to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I wouldn't go. I would yeah. tell them to. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So because seemingly there's a big chunk of the society voting for a clearly fascist party, and in the UK, same thing. There's yeah, not really, but uh, at least there's a there's a strong there's a seemingly a strong bias to uh, not have European foreigners in the country. Saying you don't want foreigners in your country anymore is a pretty clear uh, indication that I people agree. are xenophobic and probably nationalist. So, I think it's not a loss of reputation for British science. I think the same scientists that I like to collaborate with are still in Britain, still working, making good work there. It's more or less of the reputation of the UK, in which I'm I'm looking at this and thinking like, will I be able to work there? Yes. Can I can I get can I move to that country? Right. And even so, if I move to that country. Will they be able to do good science in 10 years or will they suffer from ridiculous problems with their, uh, with their economy because of Brexit? Exactly. And with, and with that, you're, you're taking in advance how they actually measured reputation. So oh. they looked at the Marie uh, Sklodowska Curie Fellowship. So a lot of people go to United Kingdom. And I assume that's because uh, in most countries, English is taught as second language. UK is known as a wealthy country. It has connections through the Commonwealth. And it is known for good science. So it's a, it's a huge attractor for foreigners to go there and work as scientists or anything else. 
So actually, the UK has, with a huge margin, most recipients of this Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellowship, which is specifically for people going into a different country and then applying there for EU funds. So a big part of the, this uh, fellowship program has to do with mobility, the ability to go somewhere else and work there. And within the UK, there had been, in 2015, 515 recipients of the fellowship grant. And in 2018, it's been only 336. It's nearly half of it, is it? Uh, it's a 40% drop. Oh. So... On the one hand, Spain is ranked two in 2018, and they only have 162. So in, in absolute numbers, this is pretty big. They, they're still leading by a huge margin. But relatively, they have lost a lot, and other countries are gaining. So Spain has gained uh, fellowships. Uh, Italy has gained fellowships. Um I don't remember. Germany does did not actually. Germany also lost, but it's a small amount, so I guess it's a that's non significant change. So people aren't going to the UK to study anymore or work as postdocs in this case. Uh, so Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellowship is for postdocs. So these are the people who mm. are supposedly the very talented uh, researchers who were able to convince researchers in the UK to take them on to work in their labs, and they're not going there anymore. So 40% drop. And, and I agree. I don't think it's necessarily a loss of reputation for science in the UK. I think it's a loss of reputation of the UK as a workplace, as a country where you want to work. Probably has to do with European Union citizens not wanting not considering uk anymore because of the the problems that will come as soon as brexit is done people from outside uk who are eu citizens already complain about the difficulties we also talked about that in the previous podcast from march i think it was in march brexit is not good for for science in the uk I guess Brexit is not good for anybody in any part of the UK. Right. But I, I'm just impressed by the numbers that it's like 40% drop of people going there, billions of euros lost in funding. If you have to pick a foreign country in Europe to go to, I guess Britain comes up on in the top spot of many people just for language reasons. Right, you could go to and, Ireland, right? But yeah. the UK is much bigger, richer, has a better reputation for science than Ireland. And there are a huge number of universities with much renown in the world. Yes. So if you would have asked me 10 years ago, UK or Scandinavia would rather have gone to the UK. Nowadays, I would rather go to Scandinavia. Yes, me too. What are you going to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. You plan for world domination? I'm going to play a board game with a friend of mine, Nico, who owns a game store. Okay, sounds uh, like fun. Which which board game? Hmm, that's a good question. I think Brass Birmingham. Never heard of that. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. 
Oh, I almost forgot to remind you. On our website, www.scienceforprogress.eu, you will find summaries of this and all the other episodes, including links for further readings. There's also a link that will take you to the complete conversation that is available on Patreon. And think about it, you could support me with any amount you like and help me produce this podcast for you. For example, I would love to update my equipment and make one additional episode per month, talking about the science underlying the big global challenges of today. Would you like to suggest a topic to talk about in the near future? You can send me a message on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Sci4Progress, DMs are open. Or through email, info at scienceforprogress.eu. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye.